we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only the will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty. Okay, well, that was Craig Murray at the very top. Craig Murray, uh, one of the great advocates, passionate advocates uh, for Julian Assange, and that's a speech from last uh, December at a church in London. And uh, Craig is just brilliant. And if you want to uh, read Craig's material, you should go to craigmurrayorg.uk. That's what you do, Craig Murray. And that was Anton Karras from The Third Man. Uh, and uh, I love that tune for some reason. Third Man's a great movie too. So this is uh, Randy Credico here. This is Live on the Fly, along with uh, Covert Action Magazine's uh, production of Assange's Countdown to Freedom. Uh, this is our fifth uh, episode this year, and we have a spectacular guest. A guest, we have three incredible guests. And uh, I don't know, it's a very challenging show today. That's all I can tell you. Uh, we have the uh, distinguished uh, Professor Nils Melzer coming up shortly, uh, who has really like become a rock star in a breath of fresh air and has given a lot of energy to this uh, movement to uh, save Julian Assange. Then we'll talk to Lori Love, Lori Love, who uh, went through the process that Julian Assange is going through right now, but he was not extradited here. Uh, a judge said, hey, wait a second, man, the conditions, and he was right. I mean, prison conditions everywhere are bad, but they're particularly bad in the U.S. Uh, and then we have, of course, someone who spent two years in prison, uh, and that is uh, my good friend John Kirioku, who is a, uh, uh, a former uh, CIA analyst, and he'll be talking about that experience at trial and the experience in a federal prison. But... Um, it's also um, this week is the um, anniversary of the death of Pete Seeger, uh, who, like Julian Assange, was a messenger of truth and was anti-war. And I had a chance to work with him uh, back in 2013 at the famous Cooper Union uh, here in uh, Manhattan, where Lincoln spoke in 1860, just before he ran for office. Um, and uh, so uh, we're going to play a lot. In fact, that's it. We're only playing uh, music today by Pete Seeger. Once again, we are in the East Village of uh, Manhattan, the historic East Village of Manhattan, um, just down the road, about four miles from the UN, where the uh, first guest, Nils Melzer, uh, is the special 
uh, rapporteur on torture. We'll get to him in just one second. Um, we are at NYC Podcasting. This is nycpodcasting.com. Looking for a place uh, to podcast. This is it. All right. So we're going to um, get right into Mr. Melzer because we have a lot to go through. Like I said, this is a challenging one uh, for me. Uh, Melzer has been everywhere and I've, I've read everything uh, that could possibly get my hands on the last couple of days. And uh, the more I see, the more I get, and everything is different. Everything's incisive. Everything's cogent and urgent. So uh, we're going to play this, um, this uh, little piece, uh, part of uh, a tune, Guanta Ameta, uh, that uh, is uh, based on a poem by Jose Marti, who happened to be born uh, this week uh, on January 28th uh, in the 1870s and was a journalist himself and a poet. And so uh, just before he died, he wrote this great uh, poem and uh, it was put into music, some traditional uh, Cuban music. And uh, Pete Seeger really owns this tune. And we're going to play that and come back with the great Niels Melzer. Guantanamera. Guajira Guantanamera Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Yo soy un hombre sincero De donde crece la palma Yo soy un hombre sincero de donde crece la palma, antes de morir me quiero, echa mis versos del alma. Guantanamera, Guajira Guantanamera, Guantanamera, Guajira Guantanamera. Mi verso es de una verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mis versos es de una verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mi verso es un cielo herido que busca en el monte amparo. Wow. We just don't have time to play the whole tune, but uh, it's so beautiful. Uh, we'll be playing a lot more Pete Seeger today. Uh, this is Randy Credico uh, here in uh, New York City. And, you know, last uh, April 29th, uh, Julian Assange was uh, snatched out of the embassy after a special deal was made with uh, Linda Moreno of Ecuador and put it from a bad situation to even a worse situation. And it really demoralized uh, a lot of us in the movement, uh, you know, uh, for the uh, for, for, for supporting Assange. All of us were really, you know, like, oh, my God, it got worse. And where are we going? And then suddenly... Out of nowhere, uh, May 9th, Nils Melzer, out of nowhere, shows up. And 
interviews Assange. He goes in there with a, a doctor and a psychologist and comes out and issues this report. And it has, like I said, galvanized. It's given us a shot in the arm. Uh, he has been a real godsend. And uh, he is uh, he's the special rapporteur on torture and other cruel uh, cruel and unusual uh, degrading uh, treatment of punishment. That's not actually the, the, the term, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have the p- paper in front of me. But Niels Melzer, um, listen, you're a godsend, like I said, and welcome uh, to uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Thank you, Randy. It's, it's cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment and punishment. I know I got it right in front of me, but you know what, Nils? I got to be honest with you. I went through so many of your uh, articles and, uh, and watched so many of your videos and did, did so much research on you that I burnt out five pairs of reading glasses. So I'm not able to read it as well as I normally could. My, my, I'm, I think I'm nearly blind uh, reading your, uh, your, your material. And, and everything is like different, Nils. I mean, you've, you've, um, you've uh, attacked this, uh, this persecution of Assange from so many angles uh, that uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me how you keep coming up with new stuff, and it's relevant and cogent, as I said. Um, so, Niels, can I just ask you this? I mean, you people identify you. This is from 2016 uh, when you started at the UN. Uh, can you just give us – I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you, this has been a life's work for you. So give us a little bit uh, of your background prior to this. I mean, growing up, how did you make this commitment? Yeah, thank you, Ronnie, for having me on the show. I mean, I, my father is a Swiss economist, and he, he spent his life doing development help uh, in, in developing countries. And he took me along on some of these travels. And so I early on, I discovered, you know, various cultures, different kind of values, perspectives, uh, and, and traditions. And, and it struck me, you know, that it, I was very interested in finding when all these rules and culture are so different, what, the, what is the common denominator? What, what do we all agree on? What's the same? What's similar? Not what's different, but what's the same with all of us? And so, I, you know, I became a lawyer, um, not because I wanted to make a lot of money, but I, because I wanted to understand what are the basic rules that are common to all of humanity. And, you know, the second thing, I always wanted to be an astronaut. I'm a very bad at math and physics and chemistry, but what I, that's not what was fascinating me. What was fascinating me was to look you know, the perspective on the world, where you see the whole world and what brings all of humanity together, our common shared planet. So basically what I'm saying today, I'm an international lawyer with an astronaut's perspective because I'm, I'm, I'm representing universal values, human rights and humanitarian law, law of armed conflict. I see. Yes. And, and, and you are uh, a professor of law at the University of Glasgow. You got your words. I'm looking at your stuff and there's so many acronyms connected to you. You know what I mean? But you become an acronym, an ICBM against the uh, torture and the persecution of Julian Assange. And, uh, you know, uh, Niels, uh, it's it, people identify you with the uh, this uh, this advocacy on behalf of Assange, but I mean, I mean, you have a 
like I said, you've been working uh, against torture and human rights abuses for a long time. And uh, so torture, I, I read where you were uh, the other day in one of your threads, uh, police brutality, the uh, kind of torture that police brutality uh, inflicts on a human being. Can you go into that for a minute? Yes, I mean, I mean, you know, unfortunately, torture and cruelty is endemic uh, on this planet. So it's not just, as you said, it's just just interrogational torture, what we usually uh, associate with torture. But it can be police brutality, you know, excessive use of force during arrest, uh, search and check, you know, uh, 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 stop and search uh, uh, operations, um, house searches, uh, uh, checkpoints in the roads, you know, when someone pulls you over, an officer, uh, you know, when they use excessive force or abuse the, the power they have to, to, to abuse you. Um, but also, I mean, Think domestic violence. It's it's a huge topic. We have more victims of violence in the world uh, in, from domestic violence than from all armed conflicts taken together every single year. And 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 so there is an enormous amount of kind of dark, you know, in, uh, shadowy uh, ill treatment that's going on that no one's focusing on. And so I thought I'd use my mandate from the United Nations to draw attention to and pull out of the shadow these issues. You know, talk of migrants and what they're suffering on their journeys uh, out of the countries where uh, they have been abused and what they're suffering on these journeys. Um, it's it, it really is a heart wrenching. To have that job, uh, it's uh, you go through a disillusionment every day. The uh, you know prisons. I, I worked uh, in prisons. I worked with prisoners for a long time, and you know uh, it, it was really at, for me at times insufferable because of the pain and suffering, not only on the prisoner. Uh, and the conditions they, that were inflicted on them, but also to the families and, and the hopelessness of the families. And, and does, does that to you uh, represent a, a form of torture? Yeah, well, I, I think in the technical term, you know, torture itself requires an intent to inflict on that particular victim the pain and suffering. I, I, I would probably, I would not presume that authorities necessarily intend to make the family of the detainees suffer. But it, it can still be, you know, a form of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, which does not necessarily require uh, intent. So that's just to be technical. Torture itself requires a deliberate infliction on that victim of pain and suffering. But yes, I mean, you know, imprisonment and certainly unjust imprisonment, and unfortunately we have lots of that throughout the world, uh, causes, uh, you know, uh, an enormous amount of suffering to obviously the concerned person, but also we tend to forget, you know, even when you talk about a, a hardened criminal who is on death row, uh, and and everybody thinks, well, he has done something so bad, he you know doesn't deserve to live. Well, he he you know he he might have you know a wife, he might have kids, might be traumatized by this. And I'm not trying to you know minimize the the harm that some of of offenders have have caused. But we as a society also have to be aware of how we're perpetuating this. Uh, and, 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 you know, from generation to generation. Well, you, you say in uh, one of these threads, you talk about torture light, that there's no such thing as torture light. Can you expound on that? Yes. I mean, it's particularly when we're talking about uh, psychological torture, 
Now, that's very often considered somehow as not real torture. You know, for you to be real torture, uh, you need to pull out fingernails and burn people with, you know, uh, all kinds of things or, you know, break their bones. But in fact, all torture always aims at the mind and at the emotions of the victim, right? Uh, when you want some, to make someone confess, in the end, it's the decision of the tortured person to confess that you're aiming at. And so uh, when you want to intimidate someone, it's the fear that he feels that you want to create. So you're using the physical pain and suffering to cause something in his mind to change uh, and, and to submit and to break. And that's that is the essence of torture. It wants to break some uh, people and their will and their mind and emotions. Now, psychological torture is particularly perfidious because it does not go through the body and the physical pain, but it goes directly. It aims at destabilizing um, the psychology of, of the person and their emotions and to confuse them and to isolate them and to kind of deconstruct their personality so they literally fall apart as a person. So it's not just that you need to be resilient to somehow endure pain, but you fall apart. You, you cease to exist mentally. Um, uh, it's, it has been call, called menticide by some, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, and, and, and that is a particularly destructive uh, method of torture um, that people rarely recover from. The um, the uh, treatment of uh, prisoners in Guantanamo or in these black sites, um, whether it be in, in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Italy, uh, where they uh, took somebody down to Egypt, um, Omar, uh, this kind of torture, uh, the waterboarding, all of that, doesn't that have like a, a lifelong effect that's nearly impossible to get over? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's precisely this type of torture that we're talking about. Well, waterboarding clearly is a physical, um, you know, method of torture. It's asphyxiation, right? But but it's still, it's you know, like it, it, it is part of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, you know, the norm, no marks torture and so on. And it's extremely destructive um, because it aims particularly and directly at destroying someone's will and, uh, and, 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 and kind of psychological resilience. And uh, um, that is, a, these are methods, and I think we ought to know that, that have been developed during, during the Cold War area based on research that had been done in the Dachau concentration camp by the Nazis. So it's a direct continuation of that research on concentration camp inmates that have led the CIA and also other, you know, intelligence services of other countries to develop these psychological methods and, and you know, pharmaceutical torture methods, uh, mind control methods that have proven to be so destructive. I see. Now, um Let's get to Assange here. Uh, You had been uh, the uh, special rapporteur on torture uh, at the UN for already uh, three years. uh, And you didn't get on the Assange case uh, up until um, because there's a lot of stuff under your purview uh, in in that role. So um, uh, when you finally, finally on May, thank goodness you did, May 9th, uh, 2019, you went to visit him. What what? what what um, engendered the need uh, for you to go see Assange at that point in time? Yeah, well, 
I think it's important for you to know that, you know, my office receives about 15 requests from individual victims around the world every single day. And they ask for me to intervene on their behalf uh, with their foreign ministry, you know, or, or in, in their governments to, you know, avoid executions, uh, avoid extraditions to countries where they like, could be tortured and these types of things. So I, I, but I can do about two with the resources I have. So I have to select two out of 15 every single day. And so when Assange's lawyers first came to me with this, I didn't know the case. I mean, I had heard of WikiLeaks, obviously, but I hadn't really dealt with the case uh, uh, specifically. I, I immediately had this visceral reaction of, oh, no, now this, this rapist and hacker and spy and narcissist, he wants to manipulate me. I, I, you know, I'm not going to spend my resources on this guy. And so I basically just pushed it aside. And... That was in the beginning, in the beginning. That was, that was December, December 2018, okay. and so about a bit more than a year ago. Then in March, they came back and said, look, we're really afraid he might be expelled from the embassy you know, imminently. Could you please just have a look at three pieces of evidence and then make up your mind? And so I thought, well, okay, I mean, I owe, I owe it to my own professional integrity to have a look at these pieces of evidence. And I, I did, and I immediately saw, I mean, if you just, just scratch the surface of this case a little bit, then the whole narrative that has been constructed about him simply collapses. And so this really intrigued me, and I started to dig deeper and deeper, and the deeper I dug, the more dirt, you know, started came, coming up. And so I felt, I, you know, this is getting overwhelming. I really need to have a personal objective assessment. I need to go visit the man. I will, and, and not alone, but I will take with me two experienced medical experts, you know, a psychiatrist uh, 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 who, who runs a torture victim rehabilitation center in Spain. I'll take uh, uh, the head of the uh, chairman, former chairman of the World Forensic Society, who has been, uh, you know, analyzing uh, torture victims for like 30 years. So the three of us, we went to see him for four hours, and each medical expert did a separate assessment. They didn't interfere with each other's assessment, a physical one, a psychiatric one. I did my own assessment uh, as a lawyer, and then we compared notes. And we all had the same uh, diagnosis, basically. We came to the same conclusion that uh, Julian Assange showed all the symptoms that are typical for a, a victim of psychological torture. I see. Um, but let me ask you, when, when you went, did the, the authorities, uh, the Crown Prosecutor Services or uh, the prison authorities uh, make it difficult for you to get in or because of your uh, UN status, uh, was it uh, duck soup and you just got right in? No, yeah, I have to say that they, I mean, it's a high security prison, so, you know, it always is a bit of a hassle to get in and out and so on. But they, no, they could, they, you know, the British authorities were forthcoming. They, they authorized me to go. Uh, there was no delay. I, 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 we were able to speak to Assange, you know, separately without any witnesses, um, uh, at least to the extent I know. And, uh, and so, so the terms of reference, let's say, for, for prison visits by my mandate have been, have been respected. I see. Well, that is good. Uh, you know, you know, you started um, uh, in 2016. Your predecessor, uh, Juan Mendez, uh, only gave limited uh, comment during the uh, time that uh, Chelsea uh, Manning was in uh, Quantico. Um, and now you, you have been really, obs not obsessed, but really involved here. Um, and uh, what was it that... Uh, uh, prompted you to uh, take such action and be so vocal in this case? 
Well, uh, you, you see, I, I got a pro, as I said, you know, I, 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 I thought I need to have an objective assessment, but I didn't expect something huge to come out of this. I just wanted to kind of, I, I felt there was a lot of emotions and politicized talk around this case, and I felt I just wanted to demystify it. I just wanted to go see the man, assess him medically, report to the authorities, tell them what they need to do if there's any problem, and then go home. I see. see. I mean, that's what I, that's my job. And so that's what I did. <laughs> but what I found was horrible. I mean, I, I just didn't expect, um, you know, before I thought, well, the man has been exposed to what? To Sweden? To Britain? I mean, and he's been given as- asylum by Ecuador. He's never been in the jurisdiction of the U.S. I mean, what, how, you know, how horrible can it be? I mean, Sweden and the U.K., two rule of law democracies, I'm sure they will treat him correctly. And, and so that was my presumption, <laughs> but I was proven wrong. And that's what's so uh, sh- profoundly shocking about this case, that countries that we take as exemplary in terms of human rights and rule of law, in this particular case, their judiciaries uh, completely fail to respect even you know, the most basic protections of due process and human rights. Well, you mentioned uh, the UK and, and, uh, and the US, but there are really like four countries with uh, constitutions and, and are supposedly democratic, and that's the US, UK, Sweden, and uh, Ecuador. Uh, it seems like they have been complicit for years in this persecution of Assange. Is that your assessment? Yes, well, I, I think Ecuador, to, to be fair, Ecuador initially was not. Ecuador initially even, you know, right. offered, obviously, asylum to Assange for, for more than six years. It was only with the new government that, that came in in 2017 I mean. that they started cooperating with, with, with these, you know, with the U.S., U.K., and, and Sweden. So, but all, but that's, I really meant to say that. I should have conditioned that because, yeah. uh, because Correa was very good. He gave him asylum. And uh, once Linda Moreno came in, uh, what do you think... Um, because you've done a lot of research, you're pretty much an expert in all things Assange right now. Uh, from the you know the publications, uh, this whole ordeal that he's gone through for ten years. Uh, what do you think uh, prompted uh, someone like Linda Moreno uh, to uh, turn Assange over and violate his own constitution? Well, you know, the letters you can you can Google them, right? I mean, the the, the U.S. Congress. I mean, the House of Representatives sent a letter. To Moreno, I think it was the 16th Elliot of Engel. October 2018. Yes, Elliot Engel, I know, a representative who's on the chair yeah. of the Foreign Relations Committee. Yes. So, and 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 the Senate sent a, a letter to Foreign Secretary Pompeo at the time. So, and both letters basically said, "Okay, we're we're worried. You know, we're very concerned about Assange being still holed up in this embassy." Uh, not because they were concerned about his rights, but, but they said, you know, uh, he manipulated our democratic elections. Uh, he, sh- he needs to be extradited to the U.S. So the, the letter to Moreno basically said, you know, congratulations to your appointment. Uh, you know, uh, we would very much like to cooperate with you also economically. Uh, and But there is a obstacle, and that's Mr. Assange. So please, you know, hand him over to us and you know, this will free the path for our economic cooperation. Well, that's, so, I mean, that's not a mystery. No, I know, but that's a form of extortion, right? It's well, a, it, I mean, if, if, they, if he wants economic aid, this is almost like this whole impeachment uh, inquiry here. Uh, here you have the, uh, uh, the head of the Foreign Relations Committee in both the House and the Senate sending letters uh, urging them, 
in Ecuador to cut him loose out of the embassy if you want to. The veiled threat was you were not going to get IMF or World Bank money and loans. So isn't this a form of extortion? Well, it, it sure is in my view. I, I, I don't think the U.S. letter referred to IMF money, but that's certainly what it ha- turned out to be in the end, yes. I see. Okay, so it was economic cooperation and other right. uh, yes. you know, joint military operations and all of that uh, uh, well, as we know that the U.S. is, is obviously an absolutely dominant, has a dominant role in the IMF and, you know, with the World Bank. So, right. I mean, clearly, Ecuador would never get money from these institutions without the consent of the U.S. And the U.S. had made it absolutely clear, black and white, uh, what the conditions were. Yes. And... Um it, uh, and by the way, it was, it was the only thing. Right? I mean, that, that's what they mentioned. That's the obstacle. That's what we need to address. So. Uh, right. All right. So now you have. Now we're talking about uh, the, the four countries that are involved here. Now Sweden. You just uh, had an exhaustive interview, uh, in-depth interview uh, in uh, Republic uh, yep. newspaper, and you talked about the this entire uh, Swedish operation and their complicity. Can can you? As you see it in so many words, uh, what was their complicity? I talked to Stefania Marizzi last week for an hour, and, and she, right. she talked about, but from how do you see Sweden's complicity in this operation to uh, expel Assange and get him over to the U.S.? Well, I mean, Sweden was an ally of the U.S. in Afghanistan, right? And so that's important to know, uh, because, because this whole story starts, you know, in July 2010, WikiLeaks comes out with this huge Afghanistan leak, right? And so the U.S., uh, you know, apparently asked all their allies to initiate legal proceedings wherever possible against Assange. And so Assange goes and visits uh, Sweden uh, two weeks later. <laughs> and that's exactly where the whole thing starts. So, so a couple of days uh, into his visit, um, all of a sudden, the, the press comes out and says he's suspected of, of double rape in Sweden. And, and so that's, that's the turning point where the whole narrative starts turning against him, where his being, his image and his, you know, his credibility is being publicly destroyed. Now, clearly, you know, if the man has raped a woman, well, <laughs> you know, it, it, it deserves to be exposed and it deserves to be punished. The problem, though, is, and I do speak Swedish, so I was able to read the original police reports, uh, you know, that interviewed these women. The women didn't talk about rape. It was, it was, they even complained to their friends with, you know, text messages that they were bullied into, or they said, like, railroaded was the word they used, into uh, a rape case that was no rape case, that, you know, (laughs) that, that they... They didn't want to accuse him of anything, but that the police wanted to get, and I quote here, their hands on Assange. And so, but then there were muzzles. They were given a, a state representative to lead, you know, the, the, the proceedings instead of them. And they said, look, uh, this is the lawyer that will actually represent you. So he will be telling you whether this is rape or not. And so please, uh, they were asked not to publicly express themselves on the case and what you can see from then on is a, 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 a criminal proceeding that, that kind of inflates this case into a rape suspect case, but where Assange is actually never invited to take position on this. It is publicly claimed that he wanted to evade justice. He didn't want to take position. The truth, though, is that 
the prosecution, uh, state prosecutor's office, published the evening when the women first showed up at the police station, and they showed up, and I, I'll just explain to you, because both hats had, you know, sexual contact with uh, Mr. Assange, but one of them was afraid she had, could have contracted HIV, and so she wanted to ask the police whether she could somehow force Assange to take an HIV test. That was all she wanted. And the police then said, oh, this, you know, we can use this as a rape case. And so they say rape is an ex officio uh, offense, which we have to prosecute, you know, automatically, whether the victim wants to or not. And so they informed the women they will, uh, they will investigate for rape and arrest him for rape. Uh, the woman protested, went home, didn't sign the police report. But they, the same evening, published in the tabloid press the headline, you know, Assange suspected of double rape. And, from, and, and Assange was not, he, they didn't try to arrest him or to actually interview him. So he had to contact the police the next day and say, well, could I please, you know, give my position on this? And, and, and they refused, it took them nine days to allow him to you know, to make his own statement. And, and, and then, and then the, the, the chief prosecutor of Stockholm closed the case when she saw, you know, what, 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 what had been done by the police and said, well, you know, I can't see any basis for a rape investigation here. Then the police went back and changed, and there's evidence for this. The correspondence has just been published today. Um, there's original Swedish emails between a police uh, superior and, and a police officer who was told to change the statement of the purported victim so they could resubmit it for appeal, but without consulting the purported victim. So it was manipulated so they would have a new basis to appeal the prosecutor's decision to close the case, and based on that you know, manipulated evidence, the case was then reopened. But Assange was not questioned, still was not questioned. He said, look, I'm going to stay in Sweden another three weeks. He informed the prosecutor, I'm going to be here another three weeks. You know, interview me whenever you can. And the prosecutor said, well, I don't have time now. You know, my police officer is sick. And so when he really had to leave, Assange's lawyer wrote to the prosecutor and said, Mr. Assange has to go to Berlin. Is he allowed to leave the country? The prosecutor writes back, yes, he can leave for short trips. The day he left, he, he had not even left the country. When they realized he had booked a flight, the prosecutor uh, issued an arrest warrant against him for, for trying to evade justice, although he had just authorized him to leave. So he, but they didn't arrest him at the airport, so he, he, he left. Uh, his luggage disappeared on the way with his laptops, uh, and he w traveled then on to, to London. But I want to say she authorizes him to leave the country, but issues an arrest warrant the same day he leaves. So she doesn't even know whether he's intending to come back or not, but she's already issuing a, a, an arrest warrant. So you see this, this kind of bad faith uh, uh, behavior. And then, then Assange you know, gets information that there is a secret indictment being prepared in the U.S. against him. 
And he's afraid that if he goes back to Sweden, they'll send him straight on to the U.S. because Sweden has had a history of handing over people to the CIA uh, without any legal proceedings. So he asked the Swedes, he said, look, I'm going to come back for police questioning anytime, but I want a guarantee that you won't send me on to the U.S. because that's a different story. I and I fear that there I will not get a fair, a fair you know, trial and I you know, might be ill-treated. The Swedes refused to guarantee that, which made him even more suspicious. <laughs> and so he said, well, you know, why don't you come and send your investigators to London and you can question me here. And then you can decide whether you want to press charges, which the Swedes refused to do. So, look, there's a lot of details. To cut the long story short, what you can see is that this kind of this artificial creation of a rape case, and the, the prosecutor always made sure that Assange would not be charged formally because that would have allowed him to really defend himself in court. But they, they spread publicly this rape narrative for nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. They, clo- they opened the case, closed the case, reopened it, reclosed it, reopened it, and reclosed it three times. And every time there was a big press conference, you know, spreading the news that Assange was a rape suspect, but no one ever charged him. There was not sufficient. And now in November, last November, they, after nine and a half years, they finally closed the case, saying there was not sufficient evidence even to press charges. But for almost a decade, they had portrayed him as a rape suspect throughout the world and destroyed his credibility and forced him into into an asylum uh, situation for more than six years. Well, this uh, definitely uh, was an orchestrated uh, smear campaign uh, that did go on for nine years. And uh, I guess the U.S. and the U.K. with the Crown Prosecutor Services and the U.S. Department of Justice and the Swedish prosecutors were really not extorted, but a lot of them did not want to have anything to do with this. And you can see those emails uh, that uh, Stefani Morizzi was able to get from the Swedish uh, authorities, uh, government, uh, that would adduce to that. Um, now, so this smear campaign, this smear campaign turns him off to a lot of people. He loses some support. It's almost like Jeremy Corbyn being charged with anti-Semitism and he loses support uh, right. over that. So um, now now the other thing that in this country that got him um, uh, in, in a bad way with uh, progressives and liberals was the DNC leaks. We talked about the DNC leaks this morning. Um, and if you can kind of recap what we talked about uh, in relation to the DNC leaks that Mr. Assange had an obligation to release and the effect it had on, on, the, per, on the perception of Mr. Assange. Yes, I think, you see, I'm, I'm not an American. I'm not going to, you know, you know, lecture anyone, anybody on, you know, election laws and, and some, you know, in the U.S. But I'm, I'm from a democratic country, Switzerland, that has modeled its constitution on the U.S. constitution. So, you know, I, I feel a certain connection there. And, you know, we have regular, you know, votes and referendums and so on. And I know how important it is to have a clean and, you know, integrity in the democratic process. But to me, when you have elections and you have candidates, you know, to be elected in a powerful office such as the U.S. presidency, but any other public office, it is normal that you have investigative journalists trying to dig up dirt and, you know, see whether there is anything the public should know about these candidates. I think that's 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 not you know, that's that's a duty they have. 
will they influence elections? Well, yes, so obviously, you know, if they don't find anything and they say, well, we researched, we didn't find anything, this guy seems to be clean, it will influence the elections positively. If they say, well, we, we, dug, we dug up some dirt, look what this person did. And they, you know, uh, clearly it will influence the elections negatively. But that's the role of the press, right? Yes. And, and the nature of elections is that, you know, uh, even as a voter, you're preferring someone over someone else, and and that's your right. So that's the basic nature of democracy. And and and, I, and and so, but the problem here is what the DNC leaks have shown. Yes, democracy has been manipulated, but not by Mr. Assange. It has been manipulated by the Democratic Party. That's my understanding of what I see in these leaks. Is that the real manipulation of the elections was within the Democratic party and how they handled their appointment process. Uh, and, and so, so if, if someone should be upset about manipulation of, of, of elections, I think that's where the focus should be, and not on some journalist, you know, pulling out some information. Whatever his motivations may have been, you see, uh, you, I, I don't know where he got his information from, and I'm not, I, I'm just saying that investigative journalists have all kinds of sources. What's important is that the information that they publish is true, right? That is important, that they empower the public and, and don't mislead the public. And, and to my extent, you know, my understanding is that's exactly what he has done. And, uh, but as, as in so many cases, you see, he's now accused of espionage for having leaked collateral murder video and all these torture uh, memos and so on uh, that illustrated and gave evidence for war crimes and other serious violations of human rights being committed by U.S. officials. And, and so now he's being threatened with 175 years in prison for that, while the people that have committed those crimes, uh, they walk free, and no one is even uh, accusing them. Clearly, same thing in the DNC leaks. The people that actually manipulated the elections, no one is actually, you know, investigating them, but we're trying to punish someone who's just published the truth about this. So I think here we really need to get our perspective right. Well, you know, as, as far as the DNC leaks go, I was a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I did uh, a lot of benefits for. I did a 48-hour marathon, get out the vote uh, show, uh, live stream uh, uh, before the New York primary. And I was really angry when I saw what the DNC leadership had done to deny him that that nomination. They manipulated the entire operation, and it cost Bernie Sanders the nomination and probably uh, cost the Democrats the presidency. And so we were angry, and we were grateful that Mr. Assange put that stuff out. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have known what happened. And he had, an, he had a an ethical obligation. If he got, I don't care where he got that material. What do you do if you're a journalist and somebody gives you a hot story? You publish it or you don't publish it. So he was faced with that. The same thing with the Podesta emails. Um, listen, Mr. Uh, Mr. Melzer, um, Professor Melzer, we're going to take just a, a, a quick uh, musical break and uh, get back uh, to this entire uh, Assange affair, if you would just bear with us. Okay. Okay. This is uh, once again um, Pete Seeger and uh, not him, but uh, Judy Collins uh, singing his version of uh, Turn, 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 one of the greats. To everything 
Such a lovely version by Judy Collins. Hi, I'm Randy Credico. This is Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we are speaking with uh, Professor uh, Nils Melzer, who is the uh, special rapporteur on torture uh, for the UN. And uh, he joins us from somewhere in Europe. I'm not going to tell you the exact location because I don't know. Uh, welcome back, uh, uh, Professor Melzer. Hey. All right. So I, I, I want to play because um, you – First of all, this uh, event that took place this week uh, with the uh, Council of uh, Europe uh, Parliamentary Assembly uh, calling for uh, a prompt release of Assange. Now, that, that was all based on an assessment by uh, Lord Fox. Can you tell us, uh, run, walk us through what happened this week? Well, the Council of Europe really is that you know, is, is the European states that are party to uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. So that that really grew grew out of the Second World War to ensure that all these atrocities that we've seen in the Second World War would not happen again in in in, in Europe. And so they have a, a a parliamentary assembly every year, and and you know they pass resolutions as you know parliaments do, as the UN General Assembly does, and so on. And so so we, we've had a side event on the Assange case and, and also uh, uh, some of the you know, uh, journalistic associations, international ones, uh, uh, submitted uh, uh, their reports and, and proposals for resolution. So in the end, um, um, we managed to, uh, to uh, 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 gather support for a, a resolution that was passed unanimously that called uh, on member states uh, European states to join uh, uh, in in supporting uh, uh, the recommendations I had made uh, for the prompt release of uh, uh, of Julian Assange. So the the, the Council of Europe, uh, this is Brexit will have no uh, effect on on the mandate of the Council of Europe because uh, these are all uh, st- states uh, nations that are signatories uh, to their mandate. Is that correct? Yes, and, and, and Britain remains also uh, part of that. It's the European Union, the economic union that they're getting out of, but they're staying within the Council of Europe, which is, you know, the human rights kind of uh, group. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now you've 
in spite of this, uh, the Brits don't seem to be bending at all. The U.S. doesn't seem to be bending at all. They seem to be, a, ignore it. And, and I noticed this in 2017 when uh, one of your colleagues at the U.N. from the U.N. Uh, working group on arbitrary detention, I think his name is Christoph Pichot. Yeah. He went on, and I'm going to play this uh, little excer- excerpt, and you can comment on what he uh, said back then. Wikileaks founder Julian Assange has been arbitrarily detained by Sweden and the United Kingdom since his arrest in London on 7 December 2010 as a result of the legal action taken against him by both governments. The expert panel called on the Swedish and British authorities to end Mr. Assange's deprivation of liberty, I think the recommendation is quite clear, respect his physical integrity and freedom of movement, and afford him the right to compensation. Well, there you go. So they're the most respected body uh, on the planet, the United Nations, our, our last great hope, uh, come out back then, and then with this report, and then with your findings, uh, and it hasn't uh, moved uh, the British government uh, to uh, accede uh, to these calls. What what do you think is behind all of that? Well, you, you see, I mean, the, the the argument obviously is that they're saying, well, you know, Assange was, you know, he's hiding in the embassy. You know, he all he had to do is to come out and face justice. But you see, uh, the question is. Would he be facing justice? What we see now, since he's come out, his, his due process rights have been violated systematically. He's not been able to prepare his defense. He's not been allowed a single time to call his U.S. lawyer, yet he's facing extradition to the United States. I mean, uh, you know, yes, in the 1956, when the Soviets invaded Hungary, we had some people uh, hiding in the U.S. embassy dissidents uh, because they were, uh, you know, wanted by the Soviets. Uh, we, ha- we had people, uh, Chinese dissidents, after the Tiananmen uh, massacre in 89, uh, hiding in the U.S. embassy in Beijing. Uh, did they invade justice? Well, from the view of the Chinese and the Soviets, they did. But uh, in the view of international law, they didn't, because they actually received diplomatic asylum uh, against persecution. And Precisely the same way, Assange, he was hiding, he received diplomatic asylum by a UN member state because uh, Ecuador's government at the time understood that he was being persecuted for what he had been, what he had done with WikiLeaks. And what, what was perceived as so threatening is that he uh, disclosed all this secret uh, 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 evidence for uh, serious misconduct by, uh, by governments in a way that was easy to replicate in the Internet age. And I, I think the gov- governments world around, not just the U.S. and the U.K. and Sweden, but, you know, many other countries that get involved in international uh, business uh, that is perhaps not always uh, 100% clean, they fear this type of of limitless transparency that could be created by uh, organizations such as, as, as WikiLeaks. So the intent, in my view, here, this is not about applying the law and punishing Assange for something he has, he has broken the law, because as far as I can see, he hasn't. Uh, but it's about making an example of him to intimidate everybody else who could possibly be tempted to, to imitate him. 
So this is all about uh, the war logs, basically, and uh, most recently, Vault 7. Uh, he's like the most feared man uh, in, the, uh, in the Western world with the, you know, the military-industrial complex or the, uh, the uh, mass surveillance uh, complex. Uh, they really fear – this is like a combination of, uh, of Jean Valjean and Victor Laszlo that they're, they're so intent – on getting him, isn't it unusual that they're putting all of these resources to get one man? What's the message here? Well, I think it's symbolic because it it means you know, it shows how powerful the idea of WikiLeaks is. Now, I'm not saying that everything WikiLeaks has done is you know is is is, is perfect and cannot be discussed or criticized. You know, internet is. Has is always it's a two-edged sword, right? I mean, there's lots of problems also with anonymity, and you know, if you think about child pornography and all these horrible things that can be spread through the internet. So, I think there's a you know, it's fair, a fair point to say, well, you know, how do we deal with you know the need for confidentiality and you know censoring names and things like this, you know, redacting names before we publish stuff? I think it's a fair point. We can have that discussion, but. That's not really what this is about, because if the U.S. and the U.K. and Sweden and so on were really uh, interested in the rule of law, they would prosecute their own war criminals. They would not give them impunity. They would tell their own populations, we, are, we have integrity, we, we live for values, uh, you know, we, we respect the law, and we make an example when we have, you know, our own officials break the law, we will hold them accountable, fairly, but firmly. But then we can also take the next step and say we will also be transparent to the media with everything that does not necessarily need to be secret. You know, and it, to be honest, when you run a government, nothing needs to be secret except very, very small bits of information like, you know, certain names of certain people that have been exposed to certain, you know, uh, situations that you don't want to expose publicly. But the public has a right and also a duty to demand to know what their government is doing with the money they're giving, with the power they're given by the people. And when governments don't do that, when, you know, something like the Senate Committee Report on CIA torture 2014, 7,000 pages have remained, remained classified. You can't tell me that possibly the public is not entitled to know about any of these 7,000 pages. Then even the, the 500-page summary is heavily redacted and, and blackened. I mean, that's no longer a transparent society. We have targeted killings being carried out every day in the name of the American people, and we still don't know what the criteria are. Yeah. People are being, you know, killed around the world, and there is no evidence, even the most recent example of Soleimani, there is no evidence at all of a self-defense situation. So this is not transparency. Well, we, 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 democracy requires transparency first and needs a media that functions, that provides and empowers the people with transparency, and then we can start talking about you know, what is breaking confidentiality and whistleblowing and so on. Well, you know, the mainstream media certainly does not focus 
uh, on uh, these atrocities. And so the American public is uh, undereducated. Uh, so you, we were talking yesterday about you don't blame the American people. I mean, but, but who do you blame? For, it's not, it's well, not my fault. I mean, I've tried to, to get information out there, but it's like most people don't know. Well, first of all, you know, it's not something that is just an American issue. Look at my own country, Switzerland. It's being taken as a, a wonderful model country. And, you know, but what did our banks do and what did our government do during the Second World War uh, with, the Jew, with the Jews at our borders, that we closed the borders to, uh, to the Jews and so on? Uh, you know, all of these, you know, every country has the same issue. It's not that we have, and it's not really that we have bad people in power and we just have to replace them, replace them by good people, but we have bad systems if they allow secrecy, and they allow a lack of accountability. Because I can tell you that only one in a thousand will maintain complete integrity if he's not being uh, subjected to oversight and control and possibly accountability. So that is just a natural effect of the human being. So we need to have systems that are transparent and that enforce accountability for misconduct. If we have that then we don't need, you know, WikiLeaks, and we don't need all of these things anymore. But as long as we don't have that, we will, we will always have uh, actors coming up that will provide us with leaks and, 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 and ways of, 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 of obtaining the information we need to know. This is... Um this is uh, from one of your uh, I, I fall, from one of your uh, threads here uh, that uh, you, you really indict the uh, the UK government, where you say that the uh, conduct of the UK government uh, in the Sands case uh, severely undermines the credibility of the UK's commitment to the prohibition of torture and illegal treatment, as well as to the rule of law. And you can read more on that in uh, one of your articles. Uh, can you uh, expand on that, Mr. Uh, Melzer? Yes. I mean, you see, the UK has this public campaign that speaks of, you know, uh, 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 press freedom in the world and trying to advocate that. And they make a big international conference promoting that. But, you know, five miles further down the road, they imprison uh, you know, Europe's most prominent political prisoner, who's a journalist who's exposed uh, war crimes uh, in exercise of the freedom of press. So that's a fundamental contradiction. They say they are spending what they, they answered to me once that, well, you know, we are we don't condone torture. We're actually promoting, uh, uh, you know, uh, the implementation and, and, and the prohibition of torture throughout the world uh, with, uh, I don't know, half a million pounds uh, a year. At the same time, they spend several million pounds a year to torture someone uh, uh, psychologically, uh, you know, in, in close surveillance in, in, in the Ecuadorian embassy. And they, they're, they're refusing not only, it's not just about Assange, you see, the U.K., just ask the U.S. After the Senate Committee report, the U.K. has its own report by its own parliament, government branch, that came to the conclusion that the U.K. government had been involved substantially in CIA torture. And the parliament, the British parliament, demanded a judicial inquiry, but the government refused to do it. So you see both governments are refusing to prosecute their own officials for participation in, in, in torture. So this 
obviously, when you provide this type of impunity, um, then uh, the result will simply be that, that it takes over hand and you will have, uh, it gets out of control with time and you will have a, 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 a loss of control over people, a loss of discipline, and, and in the end, uh, lots of crimes being committed um, uh, that can no longer be resolved. You have become such a um, eloquent spokesperson on behalf of those who are victims of torture um, and uh, extrajudicial proceedings uh, and uh, unfair confinement. Uh, I'm going to just read uh, part of a statement that you made uh, in Berlin uh, on uh, November 27th, uh, where you said, Our governments feel threatened by Chelsea Manning Edward Snowden and Julian Assange because they are whistleblowers, journalists, and human rights activists who have provided solid evidence for the abuse, corruption, and war crimes of the powerful for which they are now being systematically defamed and persecuted. Can you elaborate there? Yes, uh, that well, that basically says it all. I don't I, think, I think. Yes, I know. I think that's it. <laughs> I don't know what else you but, can add to that. You know, You're right. Well, I think the message, my message here, you know, to the broader population in all countries around the world, is really is when a journalist or whistleblower comes out with information, uh, providing evidence that your government has committed crimes, they're not against your country. It's the government that is against your country, because your country is, has integrity. Every people in every country, by and large, you know, people are, you know, they're good people. They don't want to kill. They don't want to torture. They don't want war and aggression and terrorism. <laughs> so when, when we have information being exposed that certain officials have committed crimes, that are as grave as torture and murder of civilians and these types of things, we need to hold them accountable so we can ensure the integrity of our own governments and countries. If we don't do that, in the end, we will be governed by crooks. And this will not turn out well, because they, don't, they won't treat us any better than these victims they have tortured. So it's very important that we ensure accountability and that's, I think, what's at stake in this case. This case is not about Assange. This case is about you and me and our children and whether we will be able to enjoy the human rights and constitutional rights and freedoms we have today also tomorrow if we allow governments to create a bubble of impunity where they can abduct people, where they can kill people, where they can torture people based on criteria that are secret, where you can adjudicate and punish and convict people in trials where the evidence is secret and where, you know, simply there is no way anymore to know um, who is actually doing what. Well, I think he did add on to that statement at Brandenburg pretty well. Um, so um, now Assange has his conditions uh, in Belmarsh have been modified uh, because of the uh, basic a prison prisoners uprising. Um, uh, that's good, right? I mean, that that is good. But uh, how do you foresee 
uh, this prosecution uh, from this point yeah. forward. Well, Randy, I, 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 you, know, you know, personally, I'm obviously relieved to see he's no longer in solitary confinement. But then, you know, and I, I, I honestly, I, I want to pay my respects to the inmates that petitioned on his behalf and this legal team who petitioned on his behalf. But then, you know, let's be realistic. This government has not listened to inmates or the legal team or human rights experts or the UN rapporteur for years. <laughs> it's not that because of a couple of petitions of a couple of inmates, they have actually changed that regime. To be realistic, I believe we're now approaching the hearings, the court hearings. Assange has been in the medical department of the prison for months. He could very easily argue, I'm not fit to stand trial. And he would be extending and prolonging the process. And we know that the U.S. is keen to get him over to the U.S. as quickly as possible. So my assumption, and I don't have evidence for this, but that's my, you know, based on sound reasoning. My assumption is that he's been moved out of solitary confinement. So uh, the government can claim that he, you know, he's no longer uh, ill, that he is fit to stand trial physically. Um, and also to allow him to recuperate, you know, at least part of his strength so he can withstand that trial. I see. Yes. Um, well, this hour has gone by real quickly. And um, I, I, I'm going to say this is um, uh, just part one. We're going to get you back and, and continue this uh, discussion. Um, and you're welcome back anytime uh, because you always have something new. If you're not if you're not uh, on directly, we certainly will be playing excerpts of, of some of your speeches uh, or appearances on television. Uh, you're, um, finally, um, do you have any hope? Is there any hope? I mean, all of the, all of the, the decades that you've put in uh, on behalf of human rights and, you know, things don't seem to be getting better. Is this a fool's errand? Is this a, a Sisyphus type of uphill uh, and back down hill uh, struggle that we are, uh, you know, involved in? Yes, it's up. It's uphill and downhill. But if you see, if you if you take a long perspective, the last couple of centuries we have definitely made progress, and progress that we can't fall back behind. You know, it's 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 just that the progress from let's say you know 1600 to you know the year uh, uh, 2020 uh, is clearly a a progression <laughs> but in we've had these kind of drops in between uh, first world war second world war and so and 911 and so on and unfortunately we're now again in a in a drop we don't know how far we will drop but you know we'll catch we'll we'll catch the wave again and 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 we'll, we will learn the question is just whether we choose to learn uh, painfully or whether we could perhaps look back in history and learn from the experiences of our ancestors and our fathers and mothers and perhaps avoid some of the worst experiences that they had to make. Well, I can't follow that one. That was really uh, a very nice assessment. It gives me some hope. And, uh, you know, you just keep, you just got to keep going no matter what, not be deterred. And I think uh, that's been uh, your MO. You just continue and hopefully things will get better. I, I appreciate Do you have any last words uh, you'd like to leave well, us? Well, Randy, just, 
pay respect also to your to your work. I've looked a little bit into it in preparation for this for this conversation. So congratulations also on the achievements uh, in your work. And I think you know that's essential that all and each and every one of us in where we are, you know, don't look for the light somewhere else. Just switch it on in yourself right. and show the world with the, the light that you can shine on it. You know, give an example uh, in your own life. That's what I tell my students. That's what, I, that's what I tell everybody. Don't look for the light elsewhere. Just switch it on. And there shall be light, you see. And the good thing, when everything becomes dark, you can be in the biggest, darkest, blackest room. If you just light one candle, the darkness is gone. Wow, that is really profound. That is really profound. And um, uh, Professor Melzer, um, I uh, really appreciate all that you do, all that you've done, and all that I know you will continue to do. Um, thank you for uh, being part of this. That was a very quick hour, um, and we will speak to you again. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ronnie, all and right. all the best to you. All right, thank you very much. We'll be right back after... This, uh, another uh, Pete Seeger song, I don't even know which one. I'll get back to it. But I know Anonymous Scandinavia put all these sound files together. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, tell you that. It takes over a red man try to sing a red song. I don't hear you. It takes over a red man to sing a red song. That's better. It takes over a red man to sing a red song. For it now, but I won't be worried long. There's 29 links of chain around my leg. 29 links chain around my leg. 29 links of chain around my leg on each link. An initial of my name, I said it takes a very man to sing a very song. It takes a very man to sing a very song. Sing it, it takes a very man to sing a very song. Right now, yeah, but I won't be very long. Down the track, just as far as I could see. I looked down the track, just as far as I could see. I looked down the track, just as far as I could see. Little bitty hand was waving after me. It takes a worried man to sing a song. That is, that is actually Pete Seeger on uh, the Johnny Cash show. So Johnny came in at the end. Uh, I got that on YouTube. Uh, who I, Johnny Cash, I love. Uh, Julian loves Johnny Cash, and he recommended a few tunes uh, back uh, in 2017 uh, during our, our series uh, by Johnny Cash. And, uh, well, I have on the other line someone that I am a huge fan of uh, for so many reasons. This... Uh, gentleman uh, is, uh, you know, just kind of a folk hero uh, in, uh, in the Assange world, uh, in, in the, uh, fighting against the UK, actually successful in a fight against uh, the, the UK's uh, attempt to extradite him to uh, the US, where he certainly uh, would have uh, probably been killed uh, and certainly subjected to torture. Um, but I like him for a lot of reasons. He's got a great sense of humor. 
uh, and he likes Diogenes. Lori, do we have you there? Hey, Randy. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Yes. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I am all right. I'm all right. I'm just uh, drinking some tea, having a little dance, listening to some music, waiting for you. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. You know, we had uh, Nils Melzer on, and uh, it was a it was a long interview. He had a lot to say, and uh, mm. uh, and uh, we are really looking forward to talking to you as as well. Um, I'm, I'm uh, glad Lord. you got all the. Um, Serious and intelligent, highbrow stuff out of the way. Oh well, you're a very I intelligent man. <laughs> I listen. I've seen you. I've seen you. I've uh, I've seen you on television, and I've uh, and I've read articles uh, in, in radio interviews by you. And uh, I I got to tell you, you're you're up for this. Uh, you, you can follow. <laughs> you can follow Nils Melzer. All right. Uh, difficult okay, as I'll, it is. So. So um, yeah. um, let, me, let me just see if I can make you a bit louder, Annie, because I can hardly. Can you hear, hear me? So I think okay. Yeah, I mean, if you could speak up. Okay, well, I'll yeah, listen. I'll help. Okay, I will uh, speak. That's a bit better. It's probably just going through, you know, fifteen different spies, so you lose right. a bit of volume every time. <laughs> we have the NSC here. We have. Uh, <laughs> We have the CIA. Nobody CIA, wants us. You have the CPS UK. They don't want us to be talking to Lori Love because you're uh, such an articulate spokesperson and you've been through the drill. We were talking to Nils about the um, about what what Julian is going through right now, and it's something that you went through uh, going way back to what 2013. Uh, when you were ch- first yeah. charged, what was it like for you when you were first charged uh, emotionally and mentally to be charged? Uh, it, was, it, was, um, it, was kind of, it started off as quite a funny story because um, somebody turned up to the to the door in October 2013 and rang the doorbell um, wearing a UPS delivery person's outfit, carrying a parcel. And so I got called down expecting to receive something in the post. And uh, instead of getting a parcel, I, I got, you know, handcuffed and uh, 12 of these NCA, National Crime Agency, people all sort of rushed through the door and started ransacking the house for a few hours. And um, it was all pretty much downhill from that point. And so I never actually was charged in the UK, It was, um, which was slightly strange. I, I was just arrested and questioned for a few hours and, and uh, released on bail uh, after they sort of stole my passports and... Um, tried to stop me from, tried to ban me from the internet, which they didn't really quite succeed at. But they managed to sort of haggle it down to not using any um, anonymizing software, so Tor or proxies or things like that. And then and they kept me on <clears throat> pre-charge bail in the UK, so investigation for a few months. Um, and then they tried to sort of serve me with a interesting court order, sort of um, strongly... Uh, recommending that I give them some passwords and encryption information lest I be thrown in prison for a couple of years for not cooperating with that. And then um, I didn't feel especially compelled to uh, render that information. And um, so I sort of called the bluff on that a little bit. That wasn't (laughs) followed up and I was eventually released from bail. So at that point I thought, okay, this is fine. Maybe it's going to be all right, not the end of the world. Um, And then about a year later, then some more... People turned up at the door who weren't invited or expected, had remarkably similar haircuts and trainers, and I got this sinking feeling that this wasn't going to be one of those friendly door door conversations, and um, they were from the Metropolitan Police Extradition Unit, or SQUAD, and um, and they told me they were 
we've, we've come here to take you back, <laughs> take you back to the U.S. This... I've never been to the U.S. You can save your time. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> they weren't back. wearing UPS uniforms? No, no, they couldn't. They couldn't afford the uh, the extra UPS uniforms for the extradition squad, so they were just in casual casual wear, just not, you know, it wasn't a very effective disguise because they all kind of looked quite similar. Did they knock on the door? Did they knock on the door or did they just barge in? Uh, no, they knocked, knocked on the door. I mean, I think they probably were authorized to, you know, not take no for an answer if I decided that I wasn't in. Um, I mean, they were nice about it. They were, they were largely sort of, they just didn't know what it was, so they were just going through the routine. So most of the time they're um, deporting people back to Europe. So they, they kept saying, oh, you need to go back to the country that you've run away from. And I tried to explain I haven't run away never been to the USA, I've broken any of their laws because I've never been there and they, they weren't particularly interested. So I had to go to um, Westminster Magistrates Court where unfortunately um, Julian is currently engaged and then um, I had to sit sit and be formally, I don't know what the word is really, formally um, charged? entered into the process. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not charged not quite because a charge you're not, it you're wasn't not, a you're UK not charge. accused of a crime, but yeah, yeah it's I guess it's it's similar to being charged, but yeah, you sort of put into the process, and then um, uh, my family had to cough up five thousand pounds to sort of ransom me out of the um, prison where I ended up for a couple of days. Yeah. So uh, you, there, there were not, like not three great. three different uh, uh, federal district courts that had uh, warrants for your extradition, I believe, uh, in the U.S. on yeah, charges. Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the funny thing. So after, um, on the weekend that I was originally arrested and not charged in the UK, I um, heard on the radio, on, on Radio 4, which is kind of the main um, serious news radio channel over here, and a son of a, a minister, son of a churchman has been uh, in, in Suffolk, has been charged with so and so many offences in the US. And then and I was thinking of calling up to correct them because I haven't been charged. And then it was that then that I found out that the... Department of Justice had um, decided to publish these indictments openly and have a massive press release and call up all the newspapers and make sure that it was front page news. So, um, so we actually had a lot of, I wouldn't necessarily call them paparazzi, but a lot of very persistent media people camped out in our little housing estate in the middle of nowhere for about a week trying to get a story and harassing the neighbours and calling up my family. And um, I was misquoted on the front page of one of the main broadsheet newspapers here, as saying that I'd just come back from government headquarters, which is not not really a thing that exists. But, um, I was trying to explain that I just come back from a government mandated work program, and uh, I didn't have time to talk to any newspaper people. But um, but yeah, so it was, it was a bit problematic because they kind of stole a march um, by uh, publishing all of these uh, ridiculous allegations with lurid supposed quotes and um, making it all sound very terrible and so from that point it was sort of um, it was very difficult to have the you know, nicety of having a presumption of innocence that we like to afford people under a uh, due process legal system. Well you, 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 got, so, you got a lot of early support. Uh, people came to your mm-hmm. um, you know uh, to not to your aid but certainly came to your cause because you're a young mm-hmm. man at that time. They're talking about six years ago you were like in your 20s so, um, yeah, I'm an old man now, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, 20, 27, 28. You're, you're, you're <laughs> half my age now, you know, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you're half my age. 
but uh, we both have that Diogenes thing going. Um, uh, let me. Uh, so now, so you go through this. You go to the Madras court, and then you lose, right? You lose initially. Yeah, it's, as is traditional in these um, in these proceedings. Well, I mean, not some people win, but um, not against the USA. They have a pretty pretty unbroken record of winning in Westminster Magistrates Court. And the reason for this is is quite interesting. So, um, so one of the, if you sort of close your eyes and imagine a um, uh, a trial, and um, what things do you think of? You know, um, like a jury, evidence, um, people arguing about whether something's true or did happen or didn't happen. And so, to make it more efficient, they just dispense with all of those um, inconveniences. So under the um, the US. Uh, UK extradition arrangements. There's no need for the requesting country for the United States Department of Justice to establish um, what's called a prima facie case, which is just you know, the bare minimum evidence to ensure that they've got the right person, a crime happened, and maybe this person committed that crime. Um, so they don't have to do that. They just have to collar someone and say, we want them and the assumption from the UK is it will all get sorted out very nicely in a in a fair trial in the United States, sure. which is problematic for a whole different set of reasons. Certainly. The fix was um, in from the very beginning. The fix was in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the fix was in. And so you, you, you expect to lose. But what you do in the um, in, in Westminster is you get the evidence in. So, and so we were lucky we managed to get delays to introduce quite a few expert witnesses. Um, which was important because the main argument was um, you do not want to send someone to the United States uh, court system. You don't want to send someone to be detained in the United States federal um, jail system and prison system for a uh, probably quite extended period of time because it's horrific. And so we had a few expert witnesses um, on what it's like in and detention in the United States Federal um, Bureau of Prisons um, hospitality in general, and especially <laughs> in New York, yeah. in the yeah. um, Metropolitan Correction Center and Metropolitan right. Detention right. Center, which would be one of the places I'd be expecting to stay for a few years. Um, but yeah, yeah, as you said, it was three different three different places. So, um, so I have the sort of dubious um, honor of being the only person that's being extradited by three different U.S. states in, in parallel. Wow. So they didn't even pull that out for... Um, That's in the Guinness uh, Book of World Records, you know, and, now. That is, yeah, I should call yes. them up, actually, see right. if I can get Please. a like, gong Please. or something Please. for that. And you um, defeated all three of them, so that makes it even more important. Uh, but yeah, you're right about yeah, the yeah, Metropolitan Correctional uh, Center. That's where mm. um, Jeremy Hammond uh, spent a lot of time, so I, I know... Mm. Uh, yeah. firsthand from people who spent, his lawyers who spent time there, mm. the conditions that were, uh, he was subjected mm. to. Uh, and plus he had a totally rigged trial here and it wasn't even a trial. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a complete mm. sham. And so he had to plea out because yeah, there was no was chance he was going Loretta to win. Presca. You knew you no, weren't no, Preska, the yeah. worst. Yeah. We, Preska yeah. is related or her husband is connected to, uh, uh, uh Stratford. And, uh, yep. you know, there, there was a conflict of interest. It didn't matter uh, because they, right, the right. fix was in and, you know, he got to go through the process and got his so-called mm. due. And then he got shoved away for a long period of time. Mm. And it, it's a real mm. abomination. Uh, so he, let me even, um, you know, he entered a plea, which is one of the things we argued in court is, um, you know, you can't consider this a fair justice system if um, 97% of federal criminal defense take 
a plea deal and they don't, they don't take a plea deal because they all get religion and suddenly feel very guilty and want to fess up. It's because if they don't take the plea deal, then the prosecutors have so much leeway to stack the charges that people face you know, five times as, as many years in prison or five times as many fines or uh, other onerous things. And then, so, so Jeremy Hammond, he took what's called a non-cooperating plea deal because he didn't, you know, his very strong convictions against uh, assisting the state in, in coming after other activists. So he didn't um, snitch like um, Hector Montague. Uh, death to him um, but he did he did um, take the culpability and you're supposed to get some sort of reduction in sentencing for that but Loretta Fresca still gave him the maximum that she could for all the charges under CFAA which was 10 years and then um, he would be getting out well he would have already gone out I think um, just before the end of last year were it not for the fact that he's now been dragged in as um, the, the fantastic and brave Chelsea Manning into this um uh, grand jury, uh, which is exists solely for the purpose of getting more evidence to pile more charges on Julian Assange if he ever gets to the United States to um, destroy him and make an example for anyone else that's you know dares to publish the truth about U.S. war crimes. There are two extraordinary individuals, uh, Chelsea Manning mm. and uh, Jeremy Hammond. Two extraordinary mm. individuals, and you don't see. Uh, people uh, of, of that uh, ethical makeup uh, going through the mm-hmm. criminal justice system that often. But you, but when you saw Jeremy uh, going through that ordeal, and you're still mm-hmm. waiting for you know uh, an appeal, it, I'm, I'm sure it struck yeah. some fear inside of you. And it well, was, it, it may be a remarkable coincidence. I don't think it necessarily was a coincidence. But um, Jeremy Hammond was sentenced to those ten years on the very same weekend that I was arrested by the NCA, and the NCA, by the way, weren't acting on their own initiative. I don't think they knew anything about these so-called hacking campaign. That they were, they were acting strictly as the um, lapdogs or the dogs' bodies for for the United States. So um, the decision was made actually because <laughs> we were going to sue the NCA. Well, you know, we made some complaints about the NCA of the way the arrest was handled because um, my poor dad's kind of got a bit of a heart condition, and they were being a bit heavy-handed with him and he was asking if he could get some fresh air and they, they wouldn't let him out and he asked why and they said um well just in case you come back with a knife or something <laughs> he's wearing his dog's collar he's you know wow. minister wow. so that was pretty unlikely but so he made a few complaints and it um in their uh, eagerness to absolve themselves of any wrongdoing um national crime agency showed us some emails saying that they'd um they'd actually pleaded with washington with the doj can you please not go ahead with this press release thing, you know, blowing your own horn about catching the world's most prolific and sophisticated hacker because, you know, here, here in the UK we don't don't like to actually, you know, have prejudice proceedings by putting all of this stuff out in the open from just one side. In fact, we wouldn't ordinarily name someone who's been arrested until they've been charged. And the U.S. said, nah, yeah. <laughs> we're doing it our way. I apologize for that. I apologize for uh, my... Well, you should government. have made a different decision, Randy. I'm, I'm <laughs> I really, <laughs> holding you fully accountable. Okay, it's my fault. I, I should have done something, yeah, but yeah, there's nothing I, I could do. Now, let, let's go through. Uh, now, now you've uh, been uh, in the magistrate's court. You've been, um, you know, the decision was against you. So now uh, what happens? You appeal this. Uh, to the Supreme yeah. Court, and just walk us through that. Uh, yeah, so it didn't go to the Supreme Court. So it's, um, Court of kind Appeals, of like a three stage, three stage system. Yeah, it's the Court of Appeal. So you, um, so that's your first um, recourse after Westminster Magistrates. 
and it used to be it used to be automatic and then um before my case so the, i wasn't the first person ever to not get extradited to the u.s um the the first person was gary mckinnon right he's another sort of aspergic um well-meaning lad who wanted to find out the truth about uh, aliens and free energy and so you know one one way you might do that is um investigating nasa so he sort of maybe did that a little bit and then the u.s got very upset again and they wanted to lock him up for a very long time and then his extradition was stopped politically so in theory it's a political decision and the, the home secretary at the time theresa may because of there was a big campaign she um she refused to, to extradite him so after that they um they didn't wanted to avoid this kind of political embarrassment so they took away the automatic right of appeal and they also took away the discretion of the home secretary to um to say no on human rights grounds which is worrying in itself so we had to after losing westminster we had to uh ask for leave to appeal sort of our caps to the high court and say can you please um consider this appeal because i don't want to you know be taken to a country i've never visited and spend the rest of my life in prison there and um and it took a few months so it was a pretty like low point in my uh life um between losing in september of 2016 and having the appeal leave granted in around april of 2017 so i had a, a good sort of seven seven or eight months where i wasn't sure uh i was going to get yeah matched away and yeah. that would be the end you were in limbo you were in legal um, limbo at that point right i was in limbo yeah purgatory even purgatory. Um, and um yeah, so it wasn't wasn't great, and then um, I was pretty depressed. So I put put on a brave face about it now, but um, yeah, you know there was a lot of uh, bleak thoughts going through my head, usually late at night when I was trying to get to sleep. And um, I can imagine. Actually, we did. Yeah. We did. We did get the appeal leave, and then and that's when we were able to argue uh, in front of some slightly more um, competent judges. So it's actually the um, the top top judge, big big wig, big wig judge, whose official name is uh, the Lord Chief Justice Judgey McJudge Face, um, or uh, no, I think it's Lord. Uh, I forget his name now. He's uh, Lord of Malden anyway. Right. Right. Um, and um, and another uh, Court of Appeals High Court judge, and then we got to a much nicer, more Hogwartsy uh, courtroom in the um, um, Royal Courts of Justice in the centre of London, in Westminster, and then, and then I didn't have to participate in that one because all of the evidence had kind of been put in, in Westminster, but we got to argue um, that the, the law had been misapplied. So we, we'd um, argued under the forum bar, which was this um, fig leaf, I guess, well, I don't know what's the word, um, olive branch, I guess, that they offered in exchange for making it easier to extract people after Gary McKinnon um, and the argument you make under that is if it's in the interest of justice to have a local a domestic prosecution then there shouldn't be an extradition and there's a bunch of like uh, factors to consider one of them is your connections to the UK and the interests of the supposed victims and a few other things and then that had been ruled against by the not so great judge in Westminster and um, uh, thankfully that was overturned when we won on appeal you saw you won on and, appeal. But that, the other thing, yes, you know, the, the the other thing that we did win on, which was m- much more important for me, and um, the reason that I kind of went through this whole process in the first place, to the extent that it was voluntary, 
um, it was found to be unjust and oppressive. And this is very relevant for um, Julian Assange's case. It's found to be unjust and oppressive to put someone in detention in the kinds of conditions um, that you would be under in the United States. Um, you were well aware of how bad the conditions. You were well aware of how bad yeah, the conditions yeah. were here, and you had experts. You had experts, uh, mm. human rights experts from the mm-hmm. U.S. testify, at, or at yeah. least offer testimony, uh, verifying mm. the the uh, poor, the decrepit, the rancid, uh, yeah. squalid yeah. Uh, prison conditions in the U.S. Uh, no matter on yeah. a state I mean, or I, federal level. So. Uh, mm. Uh, the judge bought that. Uh, he saw the evidence, mm. and then, uh, and that's how eventually you were victorious in your appeal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, I think. I think they un- understood that um, this was not you know, a case of traditional criminality. I mean, that this, you know, the, the the origin of extradition law is to stop people escaping justice by committing a crime somewhere and then crossing the border. Kind of see it a lot in um, action films in the United States where they're driving towards the state state line, you know, to get away from the police right. or something. You know, the idea is to restore someone who's right. escaped or evaded justice by leaving the country, but someone who's never been to the United States to be extradited to a country they've never been to to spend probably the rest of their life in horrific conditions. But something that was essentially not not violent, not really destructive, but um, of related to activism, related to political protest. Like that um, woman that, just uh, maybe pushed that it too far. yes, it's like that woman uh, should be extradited back to the UK, uh, who uh, killed that uh, young oh, man yeah. uh, in London. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. So you know, if you compare these two things, some 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 group of anonymous people changed a few websites to. Um, I mean, just to give your listeners some context, who may not know why why the United States Department of Justice was so keen to um, entertain me for ninety nine years in a small concrete box. And it was because uh, a fantastic, wonderful, highly intelligent young man called Aaron Swartz was um, effectively hounded to death by the uh, Department of Justice, by another overzealous prosecutor trying to make a name for themselves. Um, And he'd he'd done nothing wrong as well. He'd um, borrowed too many scientific journal articles from using MIT's computers from this online journal archive. It was basically like going to a library and photocopying all of the books. You know, it should have been a slap on the wrist, but because he'd been involved in uh, online rights campaigns, because he uh, had written some software that was helping people um, do anonymous uh, whistleblowing, uh, same software that's used by all of the major newspapers today for uh, people to anonymously upload documents. Um, and so it was associated with WikiLeaks because of that. They um, wanted to make an example of him. It's one of these hacker types. We've got to crush them down so people don't get too uppity on the Internet. And um, and unfortunately, he was facing uh, 10 years and millions of pounds and millions of dollars in fines. And it ended tragically with him uh, hanging himself, uh, committing suicide. That's and a so real that, tragedy. That was the point when it was, it was a real tragedy. And it's something that could only really happen that way in the United States because of the the leeway that prosecutors have to be such sort of vicious bullies and the sentencing guidelines that give them this power to make you an offer you can't refuse to try and um, bully people into taking a plea. And it obviously is remarkably successful and it's great if you are a careerist prosecutor that wants a foot on the political ladder. But if you're somebody who has um, strongly held beliefs, who um, is principled, who doesn't feel that they've committed a crime, then it could put you in this 
uh, horrific position where you you know have your life destroyed or you sacrifice your principles and, and Aaron unfortunately you know couldn't um, couldn't accept that choice it was wow. a, a dilemma that he it's couldn't find a reasonable way out of and um, so yeah people got very upset and one of the manifestations of that righteous indignation was relatively harmless online shenanigans you, you could, right for a brief while you could play the 80s um arcade game asteroids on the on the website of the united states sentencing commission you know no, nobody was killed in the making of this process right it was um, a it was a very Anna, it was a very mm-hmm. mild form of protest that's all it was yeah, it's a very mild, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, innocuous form of protest. I mean, this this guy mm-hmm. who uh, tragically uh, committed suicide and it definitely mm-hmm. is the result of the bullying by the U.S. federal mm-hmm. government and prosecutors and with all the artillery that they have at their disposal mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> that led him to uh, this tragic ending. Um, so let's... let's um, so after all of this, uh, you finally uh, are out. I think it was like last uh, 2018, February. And uh, that was mm. one, like the last time I saw you. I know you were in a BBC uh, interview the other day, but, mm. but the last time I actually heard you uh, on television or radio uh, was uh, back yeah. then. And you went to uh, see Assange. What was that like, uh, that visit with Assange? Oh, I mean, one thing that's worth noting is that I didn't win... Um, just because the law is fantastic and we had a good case, um, it, was, it was really an uphill battle. And part of the reason that we were able to be successful is because an organization called the Courage Foundation sponsored me as, um, right. as a sort of some... person who needed protected. Yes, um, yeah. Courage Foundation is fantastic. And, uh, yeah, no, they do amazing work. And, um, and, and that was actually uh, created and... Um, to uh, to help Edward Snowden, who's another fantastic whistleblower who's taken a lot of risks to inform the public about things that are being done in their name that shouldn't be done uh, to the detriment of a free society. And um, and so it, it was actually um, initiated by uh, WikiLeaks, the, the funds that were collected for that, and then the excess funds after uh, Edward Snowden got um, asylum in Russia were then used to create this organization, the Courage Foundation. Right. So, um, so, I, so I had a sort of debt of gratitude um, because I was helped. So I felt the need. Um, and this is the thing that kept me going for, throughout my whole case. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I wasn't just winning this for my own sake to save my own bacon, although that's obviously nice and I'm thankful for it. Um, but it was to set a precedent so that this could not be used against somebody else. And, you know, it was kind of new that... the kind of person that might be facing this considering he was already in the Ecuadorian embassy um, he wasn't facing a US extradition attempt they were still pretending that um, they wanted to get him in Sweden for uh, unrelated things but we all sort of knew it was a pretext to get him to the United States and so it turned out to be um, so the whole time it was to, to win this case to make it safer for someone who right. is uh, even more of a, um, a hero of um, uh, of, of journalism and the public's right to know and transparency. It's um, a really important it's, it's precedent. That your, yeah. your case set a really important precedent, and, and hopefully it mm. will be used here because a lot of us fear that he will, like you, lose in that first round in the magistrate's court, uh, that that whole thing yeah. fixes in. 
Uh, but uh, you did get to spend some time with him. Um, and uh, mm. I saw you outside the embassy. Uh, just give us uh, mm. uh, a, a description of uh, of that meeting with Julian. Uh, we're, we're running yeah. really late yeah. here. Here, mm. yeah. Okay. So I mean, it was Julian. Obviously, at that by that point, he'd been uh, holed up in a very small room um, initially under quite friendly terms um, until the the regime slightly changed in Ecuador uh, under a lot of U.S pressure and uh, financial pressure and then uh, now things were not so great for him and his health has been suffering I mean, it's even more horrific now that he's in Belmarsh but he, even at that point he wasn't he wasn't himself you know you could see the the change in him from before he'd gone in there and then um, I just wanted to come in for once with a bit of good news and say hey look we won I mean he wanted to congratulate me as well and um you know it was good to have that moment and say look yeah okay the law's a bit corrupt at times and the system can be uh, against you but uh, occasionally things can come together and you can you can get the win and then um, to transfer a bit of that energy uh, in his direction because that's that's what's needed now uh, well certainly and, like case. you say you know yeah i'm sorry go ahead it's like you say um uh, it, it things generally don't go well in westminster obviously you do hope to win and get it dealt with there but um you know we, we shouldn't get too much hopes up um for the the result coming for Julian in Westminster is that I think you know when when he wins and, and we will win for him um, it will be on appeal um, it's just it's a game of two halves as we say about football well listen thank you for your tenacity I I'm going to see you in person that uh, that week yeah. February 24th I'm looking forward to sitting down yeah. with you having some tea you're going to get me into tea and we're going to talk about yeah. diogenes all right, right? yeah, yeah. And, and diogenes uh, and other philosophers and are you, are you going to smuggle bianca in you uh, tell them at the border that you need bianca's a big fan of yours yeah. you know that bianca's yeah, in the yeah. room with me yeah, well, right likewise. now yeah, yeah. bianca's in the room i'm gonna <laughs> send bianca, you a photo i love you she loves you too oh. we all love you and uh, once again <laughs> thank you for all that you've done and uh, mm. for this great battle against the U.S. government and being victorious, hey. you are David versus Goliath. Lori Love, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, my friend. Okay. Take care, Andy. Okay. Thanks we'll, for having me. All right. We'll be right back after this. Here's a Solidary Forever by none other than Pete Seeger. Solidarity Forever. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever solidarity forever for the union it is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving amid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. 
That's solidarity forever, and uh, we'll, we'll get to the John Brown, um, but um, that was Pete Seeger, and uh, this is Randy Credico. Uh, this is Live on the Fly, uh, COVID Action Magazine's uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom, and uh, many times I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, our next guest, who um, who I've been on his show. He's interviewed me many times, and uh, John Kiriakou is a... Um, is a former CIA analyst. He's a whistleblower. Uh, he's got a radio show, uh, Loud and Clear, uh, out of uh, D.C., and uh, he is a, uh, a real tremendous uh, spokesperson, uh, advocate uh, for those who are oppressed, uh, particularly on behalf of whistleblowers. I think Craig Murray in 2016 uh, gave him the award from uh, Sam Adams, the prestigious Sam Adams Award, and I had the great pleasure of, of uh, seeing him just a couple of weeks ago uh, in D.C. Uh, at the Sam Adams dinner. Uh, John Kiriokou, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks, Randy. How are you? Well, you know, it's been a long show. That's all I can tell you. It's been a long show, and I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Um, but uh, no problem. Um, I, I, we've been we've been playing we've been playing um, a lot of. Uh, in fact, all the music today is uh, by uh, the great Pete Seeger. And uh, we were talking last night. You actually yeah. knew Pete Seeger. I did indeed. It was uh, it was one of my great joys in life. Yeah. And uh, tell me, tell me about that experience. I mean, he actually um, was a supporter of yours. He was. I met Pete for the first time when I was 18. Uh, I was in college here in Washington at George Washington University, and he came down to do a show that I went to, and I kind of stalked the guy afterwards. I, I wanted so badly to meet him, and he would always hang out after after shows and sign autographs and take pictures and stuff. And then I saw him again uh, on the very first Martin Luther King holiday. He gave a very small concert at uh, at a Methodist AME church here in Washington. So we uh, we talked then again. And then I went my own way, which was kind of odd. I went to the CIA. I was at the CIA for 15 years, left the CIA. And, um, you know, human rights were, were more and more important to me all the time. I finally blew the whistle on the CIA's torture program, and then Pete reached out and um, and congratulated me and thanked me. That was in 2007. We started exchanging Christmas cards that year, and then I got arrested in January of 2012 because of my whistleblowing, uh, and he leapt to my defense. Uh, he signed a letter to President Obama asking him to pardon me, and... Um, he gave interviews uh, supporting me and, and what I did against torture. And then finally, um, he introduced me to an artist, uh, Rob Shetterly, who, who lives and works in Maine and has done a series of portraits called Americans Who Tell the Truth. He had done Pete's portrait years ago, and then, um, and then Rob did mine. And I'm, I'm honored and humbled that my portrait hangs with Pete's in the Museum of Peace in, uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'll tell you, Pete. Pete died when I was in prison, and uh, it was it was probably the single worst day that I had in in two years in in a federal prison. I just I couldn't believe the guy was gone. I mean, he was he was elderly. He was in his early nineties, but still, he was just such a giant to me. I 
I couldn't bear the thought that he was gone. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had uh, uh, been on the stage at Cooper Union with him just seven months uh, previous to his death. And I went backstage, and the guy was full of energy and full of commitment still. And he was in his early 90s, 93, mm-hmm. 94, but all the way until the very end. What a shining example uh, Pete Seeger is. Uh, he is a messenger of truth. You're a messenger of, uh, of truth. Uh, you, you went and, and you know, we, this, this show is, has been about Assange. The series is about Assange. We just spoke to Lori Love. Uh, who, who uh, Assange is going through the process of what Lori Love went through, uh, yeah. the extradition process. So, but he won his case, right? And it gives some hope yeah. to, to Assange. Uh, and hopefully it will end there. But now we have you. And you, if in fact he is extradited, he will go through what you went through. So can can yes, so in the same court. You go to the same court. So let's talk about first of all the legal part, and then most a hundred percent he'd be convicted, and then uh, what happens afterwards. So just start yeah. with the the legal uh, aspect of your case. Sure. Let me preface this by saying that I I think Julian actually does have a little bit of a shot in the UK. Because um, the UK is a member of the European Court of Justice, at least until six o'clock tonight when they withdraw from the European Union. But, um, but there are precedents where, where British courts have refused to extradite um, people to the United States because of the nature of our prison system. The United Nations has declared uh, solitary confinement as it's practiced in the United States to be a form of torture. And uh, people have argued successfully that uh, that they would be tortured if sent to the United States. We already know that Julian has been kept in solitary confinement. That's British solitary confinement. American is worse. And so he may have a little bit of a shot there. Uh, but you're right. Um, if he comes to the United States, if he's finally extradited in the next few months, uh, he will be convicted, period. The deck is stacked. You can't win. There's very little justice in the so-called justice system that we have here. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Julian's been charged in the Eastern District of Virginia. It's based in Alexandria, Virginia. And it's known as the Espionage Court because that's where the government likes to try almost all of its espionage-related or national security-related cases. And they call it the Espionage Court because no national security defendant has ever won a case there. Never. If you're charged with a crime, a national security crime in EDVA, you're going to be convicted and you're going to go to prison. And that's what we have to fight against on the UK side. Right. That's a hundred percent record of people uh, in that courtroom. And it's basically, this is not a, a lottery where they, you know, find different districts to uh, try these cases. They specifically no. uh, indict them in, 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 a, uh, in a district where uh, it's unfavorable to the defendant. And in this case, Julian Assange, as in your case. So, uh, you took a plea deal because you knew if you, you would be convicted and uh, you would get probably 20 years in prison. So uh, Yeah, I, I was facing 45 years. 45. My attorneys told me that if convicted, I was realistically looking at 12 to 18 years uh, as someone who had never been convicted of a crime before. And the government offered me two and a half where I would serve two. So do you roll the dice knowing that the federal government wins 98.2% of their cases, according to ProPublica? Wow. Do you roll the dice or do you just take the two and a half? No. So, you know, I had five kids. 
I took the two and a half. Wow. Wow. And, and, and really for nothing. I mean, it was, uh, you know, and this happened years, years, five or six years after uh, they first investigated you. And finally, yeah. under uh, the great Obama, uh, you were prosecuted, yeah. who prosecuted more uh, espionage cases than anyone prior to him, I think, uh, uh, after Wilson. Uh, and so right. I, I can understand. Actually, yeah, Obama prosecuted eight Americans uh, under the Espionage Act for speaking to the media. All previous presidents combined had prosecuted three cases for speaking to the media. To, for speaking so this to the media. Was almost three oh. times the number of all previous presidents combined. Right, right. So the, the ones that, that were uh, prosecuted under uh, Wilson's time, like Eugene Debs, uh, yes. uh, were, uh, you know, not for speaking to the media, but just speaking out a, a, against the war. Speaking out, that's yes, right, right, against so, World War I. Yes. So, um, I, uh, so you, you get this two and a half year sentence and, and it's like a lifetime, a day in prison. And I know you went to a medium uh, prison. He's going to go to a supermax most likely, but you know, even the medium prisons, how bad was that? The experience in that medium prison for you? Yeah, this, this is, this is a real honest to God prison with, you know, guard towers and double fences and concertina wire and count uh, five times a day, plus another three times during the night. Uh, it's, it's real prison. You're in there with, with the murderers and the pedophiles and the drug kingpins and the mafia dons, and uh, it takes you, uh, you know, a little bit of time to get your bearings. I see, yeah. So, um, so the, the whole time, I mean, you're, you're uh, separated from your family. It must have been difficult for your family and psychologically for you to be in, in uh, this prison. The conditions the whole time, I mean, the food was bad. Uh, yeah. And, and how was your Definitely health? What was, what was your health like during that period of time? I went in with uh, di type 2 diabetes that was controlled by medication, and I came out with out-of-control diabetes, high blood pressure, PTSD, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, the, the whole thing. I mean, people, people die in prison all the time. In the short time that I was in prison, I was there 23 months, um, six people died, and they died completely unnecessarily. You know, when a guy goes to, the, to sick call and says, I'm having trouble swallowing, and they give him Tylenol, which is what they give everybody for everything. What, no matter what your complaint is, you get Tylenol. Uh, and he keeps going back week after week after week, and then they charge him with malingering because they say he's faking it and he doesn't want to go to work, and then he ends up with stage four throat cancer. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of medical care that you're getting. It's no accident that the doctors that work in these prisons have been disgraced in their profession. Uh, the doctor in the prison where I served my time was a disgraced pediatrician uh, who was thrown out of, uh, of Cleveland Clinic because of substandard care. Well, you know, that's exactly the kind of doctor that the Bureau of Prisons is going gonna, is gonna to hire. I want to say something else about Julian's case, uh, Randy, that I think is very important. Yes. Because Julian is very high profile. Even if he's not sent to a, a supermax or maximum security or even medium, let's say he's sent to a low, um, he's still going to be placed in solitary confinement because they're going to say it's for his own protection. So no matter what happens to him, this poor guy is going to suffer 
under a system that the United Nations has called torture. Yes, yes. A solitary confinement is definitely a, t a torture. In New York State, we have these special housing units, which are solitary confinement. Yes. People have committed suicide time and again, even at yes. Rikers. At Rikers, uh, uh, solitary confinement is... There was a... There was a um, a uh, Catholic priest that uh, had a heart attack. He that he visited people in the special ho housing units, and um, and it got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore because he had a heart attack. The the stress of going in and seeing these people, and there's really no oversight. Let's be honest, there's no oversight no. in these prisons at all. I mean, the Inspector not, General, not you know, is not looking in. This is really uh, Brubaker, or you know, uh, the the film with uh, with Paul Newman. There's just no oversight. Yeah. Uh, in, in the in these prisons, and and there's really no safety. Take a look at Whitey Bol uh, Bolger, or you take a look at Jeffrey yeah. Epstein. If they want to get to somebody, they can get to somebody, right? There's no protection, and and they will, and they will, and and there's nothing you can do to complain. You know, the the warden posted a notice once. Uh, this was I had been in prison for about eight months, and the warden posted a notice saying that this uh, this group of investigators was coming from the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General. And, uh, oh, I was licking my chops. And they said, if you want to talk to any of the IG investigators, you have to sign up here. I said, oh, yeah, I signed up. The day that the investigators came, uh, two guards came to my cell. They took me in handcuffs, and they locked me in the gym with about a dozen other prisoners who were considered to be troublemakers. And we were locked in the gym until the inspectors left. They brought us bologna sandwiches at lunchtime, and we just kind of sat there in the gym uh, doing nothing. And I was there for an entire day. So, no, you, there's no recourse. You can't complain. You write a letter to the inspector general. It's never going to make its way there because they're going to intercept it and they're going to destroy it. So nothing ever improves. Wow. Wow. Well, you can read uh, uh, your account of... Uh of uh, your time in prison, and uh, you've got like five books out there, I believe, and I don't have them listed in front of me. Can you just tell us the name of your books um, uh, before we uh, have sure. to say goodbye here? Sure. My first one was uh, The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War on Terror. The one that you uh, are talking about was called uh, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. I won the Penn First Amendment Award for that. Uh, so I was happy to get the get the word out there. I've got one on Abu Zubaydah called The uh, Convenient Terrorist, Abu Zubaydah and the Weird Wonderland of America's Secret Wars. And I've got one coming out next week called The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis. Wow. There's three more coming out after that. Wow. You are the most prolific writer I know, uh, John. <laughs> and uh, and they can get these books at Amazon or at your website. Yep. Do you have a website there, John? Yep. I, I do. I have a website. It's uh, johnkiriaku.com, and I sign books there, and, and I've got some art prints uh, for sale as well. And uh, otherwise, yeah, they're all on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all the usual places. Well, listen, John, uh, we appreciate all uh, the work that you have done uh, prior, your, your bravery, uh, the sacrifices that you have made. I know it's come at a huge cost uh, for you, uh, but uh, we are Thanks, all Randy. richer all richer because of, of your your uh, pursuit of, of truth and honesty. And uh, I really uh, thank you uh, for being part of this show. We'll be talking to you. Thank you so soon. much for having me. Okay. Always a pleasure. Thank all you. Right. John Kayoko, we're going to um, play one more, one more uh, 
one more one more Pete Seeger tune, and then we'll be back to get some announcements uh, from Nathan Fuller uh, from the Courage Foundation. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down on the grave of old John Brown. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul goes marching on. Captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. But his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, we're at the nine-hour mark. This is like uh, a telethon today. Uh, this is longer than the Irishman, but uh, we really packed in two shows into one. That's a special bonus, and I want to thank uh, those here at NYC uh, Podcasting.com, NYC Podcasting.com, uh, and um, I want to thank... Uh, also, I want to thank um, Anonymous Scandinavia for putting all these sound files together and cutting them down for us. Uh, very generous. Uh, and all the people who've been involved, this has been uh, quite a show. Now we're going to talk to uh, our, our good friend uh, from the Courage Foundation, the executive director, uh, Nathan Fuller. Uh, Nathan. Hey, Randy. Great show doing? today. Yeah, that was it was, it was good. I, and I, I got to thank Francis, man. What, what an incredible uh, engineer uh, he is. Uh, he makes it work. Um, so, um, Nathan, uh, tell us, uh, what, what's happening here, uh, over the next couple of weeks prior. Sure. So for those who don't know, Courage Foundation, uh, does the public and legal campaigning, uh, and defense fundraising for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Uh, you can find more about us at defend.wikileaks.org. We always have a live blog of, uh, latest developments and then upcoming events. You can go to defend.wikileaks.org slash events. Uh, for those upcoming events in London, in New York, and Los Angeles. Uh, and here in New York on February 15th at CUNY Law School in Long Island City, Queens, uh, we're going to have a great event with Jim Goodale, the former general counsel of the New York Times, who argued for the right to publish the Pentagon Papers, Renata Avila, who advised, uh, Guatemalan human rights lawyer who has advised WikiLeaks and Assange, Max Blumenthal with the Gray Zone, and then we have Glenn Ford from Black Agenda Report. Wow. So that's going to be a really great event. Plus, we have some special video statements from uh, some new exclusive interviews with uh, Daniel Ellsberg and Noam Chomsky. 
What time is that? And so that's 2 p.m. on February 15th at CUNY Law School. Uh, and you can find out more at defend.wikileaks.org slash events. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, and there's a lot, uh, a lot coming up. There's a lot of events. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, Courage Foundation is the foremost uh, advocacy group for whistleblowers. And in particular right now, this emergency situation for Julian Assange. Um, and if there's anything else you want to add. Last night, we just had a great event down in D.C. at the National Press Club. Uh, with uh, several experts talking about the threats that Assange's prosecution poses to the First Amendment. So look out for a video of that event coming soon at defend.wikileaks.org. One of the uh, participants is Ben Weisner from the ACLU, who will be joining us next week. And in the following week, we'll have Renata Avila in here, along with Max Blumenthal and Anya Perempelt. All three of them will be in the studio, so we won't have to make any long-distance calls. Uh, I want to thank, once again, Francis, and I want to thank Eric and uh, this great place, uh, nycpodcasting.com. Please take a look at at their site, and uh, if you're looking for a place to podcast, this is it. I know Max has sent me a customer. We call him 82, a friend of his, who will be here in a couple of weeks, and he's going to do his podcasting here. Um, And uh, once again, thanks to all. Court Action Magazine and everybody out there. We're going to close with uh, one last uh, song written by uh, the, the great Pete Seeger, and that is, uh, of course, uh, my favorite, which is uh, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And this is a, a, a rendition by Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich, and this is a tearjerker. So we're going to play the whole thing. Uh, take a listen to this. And we, Pete Seeger, Messenger of Truth an anti-war activist through music. And then Julian Assange, a messenger of peace, anti-war activist through journalism. That's the message today. And we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Time ago, where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them, everyone when will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone? Gone to young men, everyone when Will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? The young men gone Long time passing Where have all the young men gone Long time ago Where have all the young men gone Gone to a soldier Everyone when Will they ever learn When 